Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the New Books Network's wide range of podcast channels. Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the New Books Network's wide range of podcast channels. I'm Rachel Hopkin, I'm one of the hosts of this channel and today we'll be hearing from the eminent folklorist James P. Leary about his book Folk Songs of Another America, Field Recordings from the Upper Midwest, 1937 to 1946. Now, this work was originally published as a hardback and came with uh, five CDs. Now it's just come out as a paperback, and instead of CDs, uh, online access to the music it describes, of which there's a a wonderful selection, uh, many, many tracks, comes courtesy of the website of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Library, and there'll be a link for that online with the blog that accompanies this podcast. Anyway, James P. Leary, whom hereafter I'll call Jim, welcome to the New Books in Folklore podcast. Thanks, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be here. I'll start with my traditional question, which is to help orientate those listeners who don't have a background in folklore studies. Can I first ask you to tell us what you understand folklore to be, or maybe just what you understand a folk song to be, given the subject of the book? Sure. I I think of folklore as the traditional expressive practices of people uh, within different cultural groups and contexts. And of course, that gets a little murky and complicated society. The original idea, I think, was based on people living in isolated old-time peasant societies. But uh, certainly in the United States, that's never really happened. And uh, so you had indigenous people and you had people coming from maybe many European peasant and or working class backgrounds. But once over here in in what became the United States, they're all uh, kind of fellow workers in um, in rural areas or in in uh, 
in you know in factories or one thing or another and so when they they get together uh, they have uh, different songs that they know in in, in common and some of them uh, are changing as a result of new people busting up against one another and then at the same time in complex societies you have popular music that's going on and uh, there's always a relationship between so-called popular music and kind of folk music or grassroots music sometimes uh, stuff you know moves in one direction or in in the other uh, and so I guess as a folklorist what I'm interested in is what people in kind of local grassroots communities are are singing and, and playing and how they're making music that has to do with who they are and where they've come from and where they're living during the period when they're all, you know, singing and being around one another. So it's, it's not a, 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 a pious, restrictive kind of approach to what gets called a, a folk song. It, it's, uh, you know, it's more a look at kind of local vernaculars that are active. So tell us a little bit about how you came to be a folklorist, a little bit about your career trajectory, because it's very much bound up with this book, I think. Well, I grew up in a small farming and logging town in northwestern Wisconsin, and that's in kind of the upper Midwest of, of the United States. I was born in 1950, and when I was growing up, there were uh, a lot of people who uh, whose lives and cultures and the way they talk, the food they ate and uh, customs they practiced were, were tied with um, the various groups that happened to congregate in that area. So there were there were Ojibwe or Chippewa Indians um, and some people who were Métis or often Fr- French Indian, so-called mixed blood people. There were a lot of people who... Um, themselves or their their uh, parents or in some cases grandparents came from different parts of Europe and there were a lot of Norwegians in my hometown but there also were Swedes and some Danes a few Finns uh, there were uh, Lithuanians there were uh, pe- people uh, various Slavic people especially uh, Czechs and and Polish people uh, there were Southern Italians. There were lots and lots of Germans. There were uh, people of, of English and Irish and Welsh background. Uh, there were a few people of Belgian ancestry and quite a few French Canadians who come come down from from Canada. So that's the that's the milieu that I grew up in and hanging out with my friends uh, or being on the street or hanging out when my parents got together with people or kind of went around through the area. Uh, you know, I would hear um, languages other than English spoken or people who clearly hadn't spoken English as their first language. I would encounter uh, Norwegian Lutefisk and, uh, uh, you, know, you know, Polish uh, 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 pierogies and Czech uh, uh, nedliki or potato dumplings and, you know, all these interesting foods. And then there was a lot of music. Uh, some you could hear uh, 
sneaking along with, um, you know, by the time I was a teenager, you could hear in, in taverns, but over the radio, there was Swiss music and Scandinavian music and Czech music and Polish music, a lot of it mixed up with country Western music and jazz and so forth. So that's kind of where I grew up. Now, I, I didn't really know, uh, that there was a field of folklore studies. My, my parents were, were journalists, and so they were observers of the, the area around them and had a kind of a keen understanding of some of the cultural complications that they they witnessed and, and participated in and experienced. But I didn't really know you could kind of study folklore or folk music. But um, when I was... Growing up, I I developed a real interest in different kinds of musical traditions, and luckily, when I was a, an undergraduate in college, at the end of my sophomore year, uh, I had some friends at that time, uh, some of them older, who who knew of my interest and actually knew you could also study study folklore, and so I was lucky then to kind of. Um, find the path that I, you know, the, the sort of official path, I suppose, or the pathway to, to work that, that intersected with the pathway of my, my own interests as a, as a person coming from where I came from. Tell us now about this book, which I think is the product of a lifetime's work hitherto up till now. Well, in my hometown, there was a a very uh, remarkable place called the Buckhorn Tavern and Cafe, and it was <laughs> it was run by a guy named Otto Rindlisbacher and a couple of his his brothers. And Otto was the son of of Swiss immigrants. His mother's family and his grandfather were were people who um, played a lot of traditional Swiss music. And as a young man. Otto learned how to play the uh, the, the Schweitzer hand orgelly, the this little Swiss button accordion. He was also a, an excellent fiddler, and there were there were Swiss in my hometown who uh, had been recruited by local farmers as as cheese makers. So there was a little bit of a Swiss music scene, but. Um, Otto also, as a young man, to, to make a living, he worked uh, in, in lumber camps and he worked in, in sawmills, and mills in Rice Lake. And in those camps, uh, the work was done in, in the winter uh, when they could move around the big timber. But on Saturday nights and Sundays, you know, people had time for some recreation. And in the camps, there were there were Ojibwe Indians, and you know there were these you know Czech Czechs and Germans and Norwegians and Swedes and Swiss and Irish and all of these other groups that I French Canadians that I'd mentioned before, and so there were a lot of tunes that were played, and Otto learned a lot of those uh, different uh, kinds of tunes, especially on on fiddle, uh, also in the early 20th century, there was an immigrant Norwegian musician named Thorstein Skarning, who was an accordion virtuoso, and he had made uh, 78 RPM records in Norway before coming over. And then he he 
toured all around uh, Wisconsin and uh, Minnesota into the Dakotas, and he recruited Otto and eventually Otto's wife uh, to back him up, but also as part of a, a kind of a variety show of ethnic vaudeville show in the upper Midwest. Skarning would do um, kind of Norwegian and uh, classical numbers on his accordion, and Otto would play Swiss numbers uh, along with his wife, and then they would play for a dance. So he he was playing that stuff. In the 1920s, uh, Otto's wife, Iva, uh, was a skilled guitar player, and uh, Hawaiian music was was a big deal. Uh, So she learned how to play... uh, Hawaiian lap steel guitar. And then in the mid-20s, Henry Ford, um, who was worried about the corruption of American civilization by a conspiracy of blacks and Jews who were foisting jazz upon teenagers and so forth, uh, Henry Ford uh, sponsors these old-time fiddle contests through his dealerships. And uh, they didn't necessarily buy into the ideology or even know about it, but um, Otto was involved in these uh, old-time fiddle contests in the mid-1920s as well. So he uh, epitomized a lot of the musical uh, mixing and ferment and variety of my home region, and in his tavern, he had uh, festooned along the wall of the back bar were what he called the world's largest collection of odd lumber camp musical instruments. And some of these were the instruments, conventional ones like fiddle and so forth uh, that I described, but he also had uh, cigar box fiddles and uh, guitars made out of plank and a uh, so-called Viking cello, which was a pitchfork with a a single string that was played with a cello bow and a, a, a slide and um, a, also a, a, a kind of a tin trumpet that was used as a, a dinner call in lumber camps and, you know, a number of other instruments. And so when I was a kid, I was kind of thrilled to, to go in there. And uh, I learned from my dad and his sister that Otto had made recordings for the Library of Congress. Uh, And so when I was, I don't know, somewhere in my mid-teens at our local uh, public library, I found uh, an LP recording called Folk Music from Wisconsin, issued by the Library of Congress. And in there were a number of fiddle tunes that were... uh, recorded by Otto Rindlisbacher. And, you know, I thought they were pretty great as a teenager. And then later on, uh, when I had discovered that there was a field of folklore studies, and I I ended up applying to graduate school, I got a master's at North Carolina in folklore. And then I went on to Indiana University and got my PhD in 77. Um, in, In the course of doing that, I learned a lot more about the archive of American folk song at the Library of Congress and who was involved with it, and that there might be additional recordings. And little by little, I discovered that uh, Otto had been recorded by by three different folklorists, by Sidney Robertson in 19, 
37, by Alan Lomax in 1938, and by Helene Stratman Thomas in the 1940s. And between them, they had recorded, those three folklorists had recorded 2,000 songs and tunes uh, in 25 different languages from diverse people in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Uh, in the mid-70s, you know, I was able to visit the Library of Congress because I was working that summer for the Smithsonian Institution's Festival of American Folklife, and I, I poked around some more. And then um, in the next decade, I did a lot of field recording uh, in northern Wisconsin and all throughout Wisconsin, as well as in Michigan and Minnesota, uh, producing LPs and cassettes and uh, working on radio programs and for films and one thing or another. And as I, I did that, uh, I, I began to meet uh, a number of musicians who had been recorded for the Library of Congress back in the 30s and 40s or their parents had been recorded, or uh, they were present at the recordings, or they were from communities where recordings had been done and, and knew about them. So after a while, I started to produce little radio programs involving some of those people who, in one way or another, had been involved with the Library of Congress recordings in the region. And I began to imagine doing you know some kind of larger production. And uh, I got in touch with um, the Association for Cultural Equity, or maybe they got in touch with me. I can't quite remember. Uh, and initially, I had thought about doing one CD focusing on uh, Alan Lomax's recordings in Michigan in 1938. And uh, they encouraged me to think bigger. And so, uh, like, like a fool, I, <laughs> I did, I, I began to think, uh, about, um, doing something much, you know, much bigger that would look at these three folklorists who did work in the region and try to, um, find a way of, of representing all of their work, uh, within a single kind of, uh, uh, you know, multimedia production. And this is what we have now, which is quite incredible. So, of course, in the original hardback edition, it came with five CDs, and now these tracks are all online, and anyone can access them through the uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison Library's website. You've divided the book up according to, largely according to the collectors, uh, right? Yes, I, I thought that might be the best Way, way to do it rather than to do it by, you know, genre or theme or or ethnic group. Although within each collector's work, uh, you know, I, I did subdivide things by by cultural group, but it, it seemed to be the way, the best way to kind of convey the chronological story. And the first person who recorded in the area, her name was Sydney Robertson at the time. Uh, she was born uh, Sydney Hawkins, and she has a conventionally a man's man's name. It's spelled like the male spelling of Sydney. I, I think her, her parents wanted wanted a boy. Uh, but she grew up in a well-to-do family in um, the greater San Francisco area. Uh, she was uh, uh, 
inclined toward toward music and was educated some at the Sorbonne and then um, later in the late 20s and early 1930s she she was uh at 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 Berkeley and she became very interested in uh american kind of folk or roots music a former berkeley professor uh charles Seeger, uh, the father of Pete Seeger, um, and Charles Seeger was, of course, one of the founders of ethnomusicology as a field. had had taught for a while at at Berkeley, and uh, was sort of pioneering. Uh, 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 I suppose the, the worth of, of of folk music for understanding the people, the common people of a, of a particular area. So that became a strong interest of hers. And during the uh, economic depression uh, of of the late twenties and early nineteen thirties, she became rather disgusted with her um, privileged state. She was teaching at a kind of a prep school in in this the San Francisco area. And so she went to New York City to work in a a settlement school for um, the poor and working class children of of new immigrants or rural people who had come to the city. And uh, during that period, Charles Seeger was... uh, who had also taught at the New School for Social Research in in New York City, uh, was hired um, by the Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt administration as part of their uh, Depression era projects. He was in the resettlement uh, um, administration, which also became known as the Farm Security Administration. And uh, he was in the Special Skills Division. And his particular orientation was to uh, to kind of buoy, buoy up the spirits of people who were down and out in the hinterlands by uh, calling attention from the uh, august vantage of Washington uh, to to their their own music and also to encourage them to you know to make and share that music as a way to to um, kind of keep their their spirits up. So Sidney Robertson um, soon after was was hired and she worked in a number of places. But in 1937 she was uh, uh, in Wisconsin, also doing work in in Minnesota, and began to uh, discover uh, the not just what she was accustomed to, and that is people of Anglo-American background playing banjos and fiddles and so forth, but what she also found were Serbs playing tamboritza music, and she found Finns playing the cantale, and she found uh, Norwegians playing Selmodican, uh, and she found French-Canadian performers, and she even found... uh, a Scots Gaelic singer from the Isle of Lewis singing those uh, songs that he he'd learned there in the Loish dialect, and uh, so she made all of these kind of wild uh, discoveries and was was very excited about it. And in uh, 
early 1938, she realized she had an opportunity to return to Northern California to do a similar recording project. And so she went back there and eventually did uh, a very cool project that, um, as as we speak, uh, Kathy Kirst of the Library of Congress is working with Dust, Dust to Digital to uh, put out a, a wonderful reissue sampling some of that recording. But Sidney Robertson wrote to um, to Alan Lomax, who was then the uh, assistant in charge of the Archive of American Folk Music at the Library of Congress, and said, you know, you must come to Wisconsin. And Lomax, you, you may know, is uh, the uh, part of a kind of a dynasty of of American folklorists uh, who pioneered the popular understanding of American folk song. His father, John, uh, was from what I think what he called himself the the upper crust of poor white trash in in, in Texas. Went to University of Texas, uh, grew up hearing cowboy songs as a young man. Had a lot of um, entrepreneurial savvy, and in 1910 uh, published a book called Cowboy Songs and other frontier ballads that he got uh, former President Theodore Roosevelt to write the introduction for uh, comparing these songs to the stirring uh, ballads uh, of the the Scottish, uh, you know, Nor- Northumberland border border country, and uh, in the early 1930s, John Lomax was making recordings for the Library of Congress and took his teenage son, Alan, with him on a famous trip through the South in 1933, where, for example, they recorded Lead Belly for for the first time. Uh, Alan Lomax was also famous for making the first recordings of uh, Muddy Waters or McKinley Morganfield when he was a tractor driver in Mississippi on Stovall's plantation. And he did a lot of important early recordings of of, um, Woody Guthrie as well as well as recording in, in, in Haiti. Uh, very few people know or knew until recently that he did recording in Michigan and a little bit in Wisconsin. So in 1938, he had this very ambitious idea that he was going to, in three months, sweep all the way through um, Michigan, um Mich- uh, Wisconsin and, and Minnesota, uh, recording all the folk music of all the diverse peoples there, and he uh, he pretty much got hung up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, this kind of remote uh, mining and logging area where he spent a lot of time with uh, Finns and French Canadians, and had to write back to the Library of Congress to get more money uh, because, as he wrote, uh, I'm not wastreling, but one cannot make recordings here without beer. Without what? Sorry, I didn't catch that. Without beer. Without (laughs) beer. (laughs) So there he was with this, uh, you know, giant portable disc-making cutting machine and a big multi- a big bulky microphone and um, 
blank discs and extra supply of needles, and then he'd record discs and have to label what they were while driving around in, in his car from uh, various uh, singing beer parties one to another but he recorded an astonishing uh number of performances about a thousand sydney robertson had recorded maybe about 250 or so and then uh lomax had to return to um Washington, D.C. for other tasks late in the fall of 38, and he wrote to the library or to the University of Wisconsin-Madison Music Department to see if anyone would take up the work. And there was a very spunky woman, uh, Helene Stratman Thomas, who had music a music degree she was an instructor in music there but she was also she also had business training and she was very well organized and um, she was also a, a kind of a, a a very capable driver willing to drive uh, at breakneck speed uh, down uh, you know narrow uh, gravel country roads traversing the state of Wisconsin, which she did in the summers of 1940 and 41. And then there was a a break uh, during the war years because of uh, shortages and restrictions on gasoline and and tires. And then she went back and made some final recordings in 1946. So she recorded over 700 songs and tunes. And so what I I did with the project was then to have the first CD reflect Sidney Robertson's recordings. The second one uh, focuses on a group from my hometown that involves Otto Rinlisbacher that I, I talked about and some of the odd lumber cap or lumber, lumberjack musical instruments. And these recordings were made both by Lomax, who recorded um, Rinlisbacher and the Lumberjacks in, in 38, and, and Sidney Robertson, who had recorded them the year before in 37. Then there's a CD. Uh, and accompanying notes with Lomax's Michigan recordings, uh, plus one day um, uh, recording uh, a Chippewa Ojibwe fiddler in northern Wisconsin. Uh, then there are two CDs of uh, Helene Stratman Thomas's work in in Wisconsin, and as you mentioned, uh, we issued all of those. We, you know, we had to. We had to make digital transfers of deteriorating discs, and once the transfers had been made, then we had to do a, a cleanup of the sound, and in some cases we had, had to do speed correction because some of these were made with um, shifting power sources, so they were a little slower or faster. So we had to make those adjustments, which meant I, I had to work in different ways to raise raise a lot of money to 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 do that and then um then initially uh, you know we were able then to raise some more money so we could package all of these um, discs with the book uh all in one package but price it at at a price that everyone could afford we couldn't raise that money again for the uh uh the packaging uh and and production of the accompanying CD uh, at the same cost. And so our solution was to put up everything on online and just have it available free uh, with uh, 
the the book part being like the world's largest uh, set of liner notes. And I should also mention that the project uh, included a a, a film uh, as if Alan Lomax wasn't uh, (laughs) kind of ambitious enough, you know, by carrying around all this recording equipment. He also took with him a, a Technicolor movie camera <laughs> and and he made silent film footage um, of a lot of people he recorded uh sadly some of the film footage was was stolen we don't know why but some of it was stolen from his car but um he brought the rest back and Guha Shankar of the Library of Congress uh, digitally restored the film. At first I thought it was black and white because I'd only seen a, a video copy, but it was color. And uh, he did not keep very good notes about who was in <laughs> in the film. So I had to use a lot of internal evidence to figure out who was in the film and where and in some cases, I could rely on next of kin or other other kinds of evidence. And then we had to try to match up tracks uh, by performers with footage in the film. And we also used some still images. And we had some of Alan Lomax's field diaries. And I got the the eminent country music scholar Bill Bill Malone, Bill C. Malone, uh, who. Uh, happens to live nearby where I live now in Wisconsin, but Bill is originally from East Texas, and uh, his his dialect is at least somewhat sim- uh, similar to uh, Alan Lomax's, who is a fellow East Texan. So I recorded Bill reading Alan Lomax's uh, field notes and correspondence and then kind of worked out a, a film treatment or sequencing with, with Guha, and uh, we went out, uh, I went out to the Library of Congress and we did a rough cut of the film and eventually Guha finished it up. So um, that was a a DVD that came out with the original production, but uh, now it too is available uh, free um, on the University of Wisconsin Library's Folk Songs of Another America, Folk Songs of Another America site. Right. So this was a monumental undertaking. And although uh, you sounded a bit um, sad that you hadn't been able to raise the money to put everything together into a new set, it's actually turned into a great advantage. We can all hear these these tracks or see the film. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and you know, the other thing I should mention is... is beyond the, the technical and fiscal challenges of this, the fact that the songs were in 25 different languages, and not only that, but but strange, or not strange, but but many many dialects thereof, and then sometimes complicated by, by mixed language or by esoteric occupational speech or, or jargon, made it a real challenge to... <laughs> You know, to get the 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 lyrics, uh, and then to do translations, and uh, but because we had the stuff in digital format, then I could send digital files to uh, you know friends who knew Welsh or Lithuanian or uh, Quebecois French or 
Ho-Chunk or some of these languages. And uh, so that, that too was uh, kind of <laughs> a monumental challenge. Right. I, I should say that the, the book was the winner of the Association for Recorded Sound Collections Award for Best Historical Research in Folk or World Music and a Grammy Award nominee for the Best uh, Liner Notes. And if you look at the... If I, actually, I got kind of tearful when I was looking at the reviews <laughs> because there's just all those, like, stellar, you know, it's truly amazing, monumental, a stunning work of curation and scholarship, <laughs> so comprehensively detailed and thoroughly vetted that it would be hard to see where one would have a complaint about this magnificent volume. It's, it's just like people falling over themselves to praise it, which I, I'm not surprised about. But it, it's it's lovely that your your work is getting this acclaim. Well, it was su- such a thrill to to read all those, and as you say, it it uh, I feel like I worked at it my my entire life. <laughs> you know, little little by little, I'll I'll never do anything like it again. <laughs> But it was just, I felt like, a, you know, I mean, there are a couple of small mistakes in there that I was able to at least, I hope, uh, address in, in the, this, the short uh, introduction to the, the paperback edition. But for the most part, with a lot of help from a lot of amazing and generous and highly skilled people, you know, I think, I think we, we nailed it. So uh, yeah. that's, it is a good feeling. So we're going to have a little listen to a few of the pieces. Now, I'm going to tell the listeners this. This is not going to be high-quality audio because what I'm doing is playing the tracks on one computer and recording them on, on, on another. But the listeners can access the tracks directly via the website that we've been talking about where they'll hear how wonderfully they've been digitally remastered. So the first one we've chosen comes from the section of recordings by Sidney Robert- Robertson, who I must say I rather like. I'm just going to read a little bit of a letter that you uh Featured an excerpt. Oh, yeah. She's sending a report to her Washington superiors, and she says, This is a rough country. Three saloons or taverns to every block on each side of the street. And at a small crossroads villages, there is usually a store, a gas station, two houses and two taverns. I went into three taverns on the main street in Rhinelander in the morning at Mr. Sorden's suggestion, looking for a miniature carved logging camp that some tavern keeper owned. And I swear I was a marked character the rest of the day. I've never been so stared at, nor so suggestively appraised anywhere in the world. Ever I went, and by the toughest looking characters. I swear my lower east side gang couldn't touch them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I was just in Rhinelander about 10, 10 days ago, and I, I thought about that particular <laughs> passage. And it, it's very much like my hometown, Rice Lake. And these were, these were rough old logging towns. And if you were a single woman on the street, um, and and then going into taverns that were hangouts for lumberjacks, uh, you know, uh, yeah, people would kind of <laughs> <laughs> kind of raise their eyebrows. But she was a very tough and spunky person, and in fact, um, you know, she recorded uh, some some body songs, and uh, uh, she, I, I just have tremendous admiration for her. Uh, you know, her, her nerve and her skill and her openness, uh, her pluck. Was she the one that recorded the alphabet song that you mentioned in the introduction, which is A is for alphabet? No, that was, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 that's, uh, that's, that's one of my, my favorites. <laughs> uh, no, that was Helene Stratman Thomas. Actually, it's kind of a funny thing. Um, 
when Alan Lomax was recording, he recorded some raunchy songs, and there there are plenty of them in this collection. Mm -hmm. uh, there was one that was kind of like the holy grail of the uh, lumber camp uh, vulgar or bawdy song, uh, The Red Light Saloon, about a, a whorehouse. And mm -hmm. he had heard about it, but uh, had never been able to record a version. So he asked Helene Stratman Thomas specifically to hunt for this song and she found people who who knew it but they didn't want to sing it for her uh, <laughs> fortunately she had a, a student engineer that she worked with and he, he traveled he was an engineering student who was also a, a music major and so he ran the recording equipment so on these occasions she went out and waited in the car and then they would sing uh uh you know sing these songs including uh uh you know that lumberjack's the, the you know the alphabet song uh and uh all in all i mean she ended up capturing uh, three versions of the red light saloon oh, where wow. alan lomax hadn't gotten any and i i, I put two of them uh, okay. uh, on, on okay. the song <laughs> we're not going to hear that at the moment nor are we going to hear the alphabet song which i was so enchanted by the sound of uh, we're going to hear something by a John Matheson. This was recorded by Sidney Robertson on uh, the 18th of September in 1937. And it's, I can't possibly say the word in the title in Gaelic, but it's, we oh, will sing it. Road. So do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about this? It's, it's a song. It's kind of a song about uh, gathering various uh, uh, Scottish clans together. So it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, battle song that uh, that uh, John Matheson, who came from the Isle of Lewis uh, to Duluth, Minnesota, sang. Okay, here we go. In a moment, it just takes a second to load on my other computer. And a second more. <laughs> So you say in the liner notes, this is similar to the tune of London Bridges Falling Down. It certainly sounded very familiar to me by that. Yeah, and one of the cool things about Matheson is there uh, there is currently in uh, in the Minneapolis uh, St. Paul greater area uh, a singer of Scots descent, Laura McKenzie, who um, sings in in Gaelic, and and she uh, I, I shared. I've, I've worked with her some at, at different festivals, and I shared these recordings of Matheson. There were 13 tracks altogether. Four of them are on this um, Folk Songs of Another America. And she decided she wanted to do a, a new production um, with new recordings that she and other people made of all 13 songs. And she was able then to get in touch with uh, Matheson's uh, granddaughter. I, I had contact for that and made a, a really fantastic um, CD uh, and has been doing concerts related to it. So one, one of the exciting things, and I guess one of the reasons why I've, I've done this project, uh, one of the many reasons, is, is to uh, 
put the music of the upper Midwest into circulation right. in hopes, in, in part, not only that people would learn about it, but also some people would take this up instead of looking to other parts of the country or the world to, for inspiration you know they could find some things right right here the next track we we selected so we we, we had a, a look at one from each section so the next section which was about lumberjacks you picked out stearman's valves yeah and this i i i chose this in in part because uh it was made by someone i I knew um, in the late 80s, uh, I was making, uh, co-producing a radio series called Down Home Dairyland. And I interviewed uh, Ray Calkins, who plays on this track. He was uh, living in a little community, Chatek, near my hometown of Rice Lake in a rest home. He was uh, in his 90s. And he... Uh, he talked to me and recorded uh, different, you know, different songs and tunes. But this one is played on um, a homemade guitar, a lumber camp made guitar that he called the Paul Bunyan harp after that kind of woods giant. And the tune that he's playing, he, you know, he called it something like, I don't know, Paul Bunyan's waltz or something like that. But it's, um, it's it's a well-known Scandinavian tune called Stiermann's Waltz, uh, pilot's waltz, like the the pilot of a of a, a ocean-going vessel. And so you'll hear him play it on this kind of simple lumber camp instrument, and it's kind of an interesting instance of exchange across cultures and kind of renaming of of, of songs that happened in uh, in the Upper Midwest region. Recorded at the National Folk Festival, I, I saw. That's that's right. Yeah, um, partly as a result of of uh, Sidney Robertson's um, efforts in Wisconsin, but also through the efforts of Sarah Gertrude Knott, who founded in in the early thirties this um, this uh, annual event called the National Folk Festival. Uh, Otto Rinlesbacher and the Wisconsin Lumberjacks, or he he was asked to put together a, a troupe for the National Folk Festival that was happening in uh, in in Chicago, and so it it occurred there in 1937. And then the next year, uh, the same group of Wisconsin Lumberjacks went out to Washington, D.C. Uh, to perform. And so Sid, Sydney recorded them in Chicago in 37. And then uh, the following year, Alan Lomax recorded them in, in Washington. Now, in the next section, the section devoted to recordings made by Alan Lomax, and the track that you chose from there was, was by Exilia Belair. Now, tell us a little bit about Exilia. Well, Exilia and, and Mose Belair, uh, they can actually be seen in, in the film that, that goes with this, sitting outdoors singing a duet, but they had a, a big house and a large family. They were very sociable. They were a French-Canadian family. Um, and uh, and th so that's where a lot of these recordings were, were made and, and also through their, their contacts. Uh, 
In the late 80s, uh, I knew about all these recordings made in this community of Barriga, Michigan, and they had a little area called Frenchtown. And so I, I wrote uh, to the local paper listing the names of a whole lot of people who were recorded to see if anyone remembered them, if, if remembered them if there were descendants around. And I was able to go back to that community then and meet a lot of descendants, including a number of Mose and Exilia Belair's uh, daughters who were, were present and, uh, you know, who, who experienced those recordings and could could talk about them. So this song is, is, is a French-Canadian song. It's well-known in, in, in Canada, and it's one of those macaronic songs, and it's about a, a young woman uh, and her misadventures going to, to market. Uh, but in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, there's a community called Marquette, and so she sings that I went to, to Marquette, and she's mixing French and English back and forth. So this is uh, Exilia Belair. I went to Marquette, I'm all bunny to see my brother. I'm a wish you don't go say, Nothing to never call. Oh, I love you, I know, Mimmy, yeah. Oh, I love you, but no, Mimmy, Paul. I bought some apples, you could not afford. I bought a dozen, who probably fed up. Oh, I love you, I know, Mimmy, yeah. Oh, I love you, I know, Mimmy, Paul. I bought some apples. Wonderful stuff. Um. <laughs> <laughs> And um, we're moving into the work, the recordings of Helen, Helene, or Helene Stratton yeah. Thomas. We're going to cut straight to the last CD and hear a little bit of a Polish piece. Matusz Moja, yeah. This is Ber- Bernice Barnock. Uh, and she and her husband were were journalists in, in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, which is the largest r- rural Polish area in the United States. And they had quite quite a repertoire of traditional songs. This is a a song, a a young girl is asking her mother uh, support to marry a handsome young fellow with curly hair. So, of course, people, all our listeners should go straight to the website and find uh, all of these. I think it's 170, 180. 87 tracks altogether, is, is that right? Yes. Uh, once you get to the site, you can scroll down. And there, my, my daughter, who's a, an artist, made some beautiful uh, woodcuts, uh, kind of emulating 19th century broadsides for each, uh, each uh, of the CDs plus the film. And you could click on those to, to browse through all the tracks or, or else you can search by, by a, you know, a language or an ethnic group or something like that but it's folk songs of another america so you said a little bit earlier that one of your reasons for creating this project was because you wanted musicians today to know about this music and include it in their repertoire i was curious to know why people haven't known so much it seems to have been an underrepresented area in terms of coverage of its music because we all know about the appalachian folk music and the country music in the south and so on and so forth but this place this area is incredibly rich why why is its richness not so well known do you think 
I I think there are a lot of reasons. I mean, one is I suppose maybe the success of the Lomaxes and all in, in popularizing music of, um, of of Southerners and also of cowboys uh, in the early twentieth century, but also in in American life, uh, the Midwest, the Upper Midwest, is sort of thought of as either this this boring kind of place or uh, an extension maybe of New England. But in the upper part, the fact that people came from so many different places uh, and uh, there were you know more Germans, for example, than anyone else, made this uh, area in some ways seem uh, you know not part of the mainstream. There's been this suppression of uh, so-called foreign life of this denial of immigrant heritage and cultural pluralism and diversity in, in American life that uh, unfortunately has been a uh, kind of a continuous thread in, in the United States. Uh, and so, you know, when people think of American folk music, uh, most of the people I grew up, when they think of folk music, they've been trained to think of folk music as music that comes from other parts of, of the United States. And uh, I remember interviewing a, a an old fiddler who played uh, Anglo-American, but also uh, Norwegian and, and Czech tunes. And he'd been playing them. He was a third generation fiddler. He said, you know, I've he said, I, I've played a lot of different kinds of music, but I, I've never played folk music. <laughs> and of course, by that he meant sort of the, the the commercialized folk music of urban people playing music that they didn't grow up with, but that, that they've appropriated from field recordings or else, uh, you know, or else are, are, are singer songwriters who are kind of making up their own stuff. So, uh, Anyway, that contributes to it all. <laughs> well, congratulations on this wonderful work. I, um, uh, are you working on anything at the moment, or are you taking a rest? No, I'm always working on stuff. I, I uh, of course, I, I'm working in part on getting a lot of these materials online, and we have a larger website called Local Centers Global Sounds, where we're we're putting up a lot of field and home recordings from the Upper Midwest as a region, along with a lot of um, uh, seventy eight RPM recordings that were issued for immigrant and ethnic groups in the United States in the twenties uh, and early thirties. And then I've just produced a, um, a two CD set or co-produced a two CD set and booklet called Alpine Dreaming: The Helvetia Record Story with Archeophone records that uh, has to do with a, a Swiss immigrant label established in Wisconsin in the early 1920s. And we found every 78 they put out and it's it's coming out this month. <laughs> oh, good heavens. Well, listen, thank you so much, Jim Leary. James P. Leary is your official author name. Yeah. Um, and for taking part in this New Books in Folklore podcast, which is part of the New Books Network. And um, hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Thanks so much, Rachel. It's been a treat.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.